Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. Today we have an exciting episode ahead of us with Brad Jones. He's an Aussie who started his career in the Australian Army before going on to forge a successful path in banking with ANZ and NAB. But he's always had one foot in Asia, specifically Cambodia, Singapore and Myanmar. In 2008, he left Australia for Cambodia, where he founded Wing Money, one of the first bank-led mobile payment businesses in Southeast Asia. More recently, he was the founding CEO of Wave Money in Myanmar, which started life as a joint venture with Norwegian state-owned telco Telenor Group and is now fully owned by Singaporean company Yoma Strategic. And we're very excited to have him to talk about the journey. Welcome, Brad. Thank you very much. Really pleased to be here. So the first thing I'd like to know is you started uh, Wave Money in Myanmar in 2015. Why Myanmar? And what has it been like to work there in that period up until 2001 and then after 2001, uh, 2021, sorry. Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I was, I've been involved in fintech since, uh, since I founded Wing in Cambodia, which started really around 2007, 2008. And I had left Cambodia probably with a few frustrations that we didn't get to do everything there that I felt we could have done. We launched the business and then uh, I was running it for a few years, but we, we launched right in the middle of the GFC. ANZ didn't really have uh, a strong appetite for mass market retail or was really changing its approach to the retail business in Southeast Asia, which you're obviously seeing the manifestation of today with a very much reduced footprint in Asia. And so we were sort of caught that perfect storm of GFC, ANZ sort of really changing the strategy on mass market retail and, and even sort of going further up the value chain on retail. And so I would say that we fell out of strategy somewhat. And so it, it was, uh, there were probably, uh, in retrospect, I think one of the things I, I, the only thing I regret is I didn't try and buy the business off ANZ at the time, because I think uh, it was a great opportunity and, and that business has gone on to be very successful with new owners. So I think for me with Myanmar, when the Myanmar opportunity came up, it was really just through my connections that had come out of Cambodia. So we had worked with uh, the World Bank and IFC in, in Cambodia. And one of my connections from there had met the CEO of Yoma Bank, which was our banking partner, which is our banking partner in Myanmar. They had just done a handshake deal to set up a joint venture, FinTech, with Telenor, which is the biggest Norwegian telco, government-owned telco. And they needed a CEO. And so really, I got the phone call and uh, I only had two questions really, which was, you know, is this in strategy for the entities? Because I've had that experience in ANZ where it wasn't. And um, do the shareholders uh, intend to invest the amount of money that needs to make this successful? And the, the answers to those questions were unequivocally yes on both counts. And yeah, so I was really, really keen. And um, so I came up to Myanmar a couple of times had a look at the market and uh, and it was very very early i mean we 
that there was about three or four people who were working on it in Telenor. Uh, there was a PowerPoint deck, basically, some a bit of strategy work, but it was very, very, very grassroots. So it was a fantastic opportunity a second time around to, to build FinTechs in the ground up. And I was reading um, an interview with you where you said that Myanmar went from no smartphones to almost total penetration of smartphones. Was that a factor? Was that something that you looked at and said, I can really work with this, or did that come later? I'd love to say it was, but it wasn't actually. Um, I think sometimes these things are more good luck than good management. So what what had happened was we had actually planned out our business model was very much what I call mobile money 1.0, which is a USSD, SMS sort of based service offering. But what actually happened in Myanmar, because the telco networks were really building out just as we were building out the platform. And all of a sudden, there was this massive take-up of 4G services. And at the same time, uh, you had uh, the market being flooded with smartphones as cheap as 30 to $40. So you had this huge penetration, 85 to 90% um, self, uh, smartphone penetration and data penetration, um, which had never been seen before in a developing market. I mean, even if you go to markets in Africa, which are very big fintech mobile money markets, they're still only sitting at maybe 40 to 45% smartphone. Or less than case of Uganda. Exactly. What caused that surge? And did it come just after or as you were launching? It was coming It was coming in parallel. So um, the, the government at the time that actually opened up the telecommunications sector to two international operators, so Telenor and Oradu out of Qatar, um, I think uh, Oradu had launched with a, a, a 4G strategy. Uh, Telenor launched with a 2G strategy. But I think Telenor then saw su- such great demand that Oradu with the 4G that they very quickly pivoted. And I think really what it was was that no one had access to internet at that stage. I mean, there was broad you know, internet penetration was probably about 2 or 3% at the very best in the country. So all of a sudden you had this revolution basically of people being able to access uh social media access uh uh you know different apps and and yeah and so we really had to pivot our business as well from a ussd based business to an app first business so we don't even offer ussd anymore it's completely app and we've been like that for for the last seven years um so yeah and so we've had to design uh, apps and and those sort of products for that consumer base um which has been really interesting. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, probably the first time in developing markets that, that, that that's actually been done. Now, fast forward to 2021 and then today, I realise you're still based in Myanmar. You're probably limited in what you can actually say, but what has it been like working through those events and what is it like working there today? What has changed? What restrictions have come into play and what kind of reception um, does your business now get internationally? Well, I think it's been really interesting and and obviously, you know, if you, if you go even back a year before to the, to the COVID period, like every digital payment business in the world, we had a massive acceleration. So we saw like an eight times increase in transactions and users and so on. So we, we were coming off a high. We really were. I mean, coming into February 2021, you know, we had had a fantastic year despite the challenges of COVID. We were, we were very excited about what uh, we, we'd also just announced uh, uh, an investment by Ant Financial. And uh, and so we were in the process of closing that, that deal. 
And so, yeah, look, it was uh, it was a pretty exciting time. Um, I would say, look, you, you know, politics aside, I would say what happened from February 2021 is, is we went through a series of shocks. And I, I think the first shock was really the security shock and the fact that, you know, a lot of people on the streets protesting and, and you know, the need to make sure our staff were safe and, and uh, protected and so on. I think one of the responses to to that was, uh, an internet ban. So the internet basically was shut down for two months. Uh, and we're an internet-based business. So, you know, trying to run a business when all of a sudden 4G is actually banned was incredibly difficult. So we had to make some very significant adjustments uh, as we saw a, a large revenue drop. Um, we then rolled pretty much into the next crisis, which was a banking crisis. So, you know, I've now had the as a banker for 20 years, it's the first time I got to experience the, uh, the the need to manage a business through a bank run. So we actually had had that happen, and that sort of then flowed into a cash crisis where we saw a lot of cash go under the mattress and and uh, a very very limited amount of cash available in the market. Um, and then we pretty much rolled straight from that into a, into the third wave of COVID, which was absolutely devastating. And so you know we we really sort of had that health crisis element as well. So I would say, you know, 2021 for us, it was not a normal year at all. It, and really, it was really just a matter of managing from crisis to crisis and at the same time, trying to make sure our people were looked after and as best we could and and we could keep the business running. And and, uh, and amazingly, we stayed profitable throughout that whole period uh, and managed to, you know, keep our people safe and, and uh, we were able to get vaccinated and all those type of things as well. So... I'd have to say probably the most difficult experience of my life, but also one of the most uh, rewarding as well. What sort of restrictions are you are you operating under any restrictions now, given the change of government? So we we operate. I mean, one of the the, the things we looked at straight away when it happened was what's the legal framework. Uh, we also knew the legal framework which we operated in, but we went and 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 just reacquainted ourselves with that and made sure that. You know, it was very clear what we were, we were obligated to do and not do, and and that's the way we've operated ever since then. So, the the laws of the country um, stand, uh, despite what's happening in the country. So, the regulation we operate under stands, um, and so we continue to ensure compliance to that regulation, and compliance to the Central Bank of Myanmar, uh, which is our regulator, our, our APRA equivalent. Um, and uh, and ensure we do that. What, what I would say in terms of restrictions, I wouldn't say restrictions as such, but certainly there has been an increased focus on KYC. I think the regulation that we were operating under um, was very much a regulation that was balanced around financial inclusion, as much as uh, as as bringing in customers who were financially um, who who already had bank accounts, whatever. It was very much trying to bring people in who didn't have ID and those type of things. So there's certainly been a change in approach um, on, on that uh, issue and a tightening of that issue, but we just had to basically make sure we continue to comply, I, I think. What kind of change? Um, so you said there's there's been some changes around KYC and um, and obviously those changes around um, uh, customer acquisition. What sort of changes are you talking about here? It's been predominantly removing the ability for customers without KYC to have accounts. Um, and, and that was one of the features of the regulation previously was that um, approximately 20 to 30% of the population in Myanmar don't have 
on our ID cards. You know, it's a, it's a really challenging environment. It's not like Australia where we have, you know, drive's licenses and passports and bank cards and all these type of things. So, you know, the ID cards are handwritten. Uh, they're issued by the township office, but like being the council issuing your ID card, if you'll get an ID card at the age of 18, that's your ID card still when you're 50. So, you know, there's issues, real issues around things like uh, using OCR systems to sort of capture information and um, and even just reading those ID cards. And then if people lose those ID cards, then it's very difficult to get them replaced. So there, there are challenges in the ID card system and the regulation was balanced in a way to try and bring people into the financial system with some of those limitations. What were the reasons behind the change? Um, it's This sort of starts to end into sort of a, a sensitive area because I think it's uh, predominantly around uh, a perception that uh, that no KYC or limited KYC accounts were being used by um, opposition groups to the to the military to basically move money. So, so that's been something we've had to be cognizant of. And as I said, you know, we follow the law, uh, we follow the regulation that, that we're under, um, and 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 do our best to basically adhere to that. Now, you mentioned a bank run just before. Do you have any tips for bankers to manage a bank run? Yeah, I mean, we we won't. I mean. We don't take deposits, so we we weren't in the same situation as such, and we didn't see uh, even you know that the customers could hold up to about a thousand dollars in their accounts with us, and we didn't see any great rush for customers to cash out. But I think one of the things about Myanmar is it has a history of bank runs. Um, if you go back over the last twenty five years, you'll see uh, there's been a number of times. Even further, there's been a number of times where uh, certain economic crises led to bank runs. I think. The, this one was precipitated really by withdrawal limits, actually. And, and I, I can understand why the withdrawal limits were put in place because they were trying to protect the liquidity that was inside the bank, uh, inside the banks. But at the same time, it sort of led to a crisis of confidence that uh, withdrawal limits were going to make it very difficult for people to access their savings. So I think the one thing I've learned is actually the importance of liquidity. Um, I mean, it, it really has just absolutely been hammered home that uh, liquidity wins in any situation like this. And one, we've been very fortunate that our local bank partner um, was was very focused on on liquidity and, and managed to actually avoid the worst of it. So so we we didn't have a lot of the challenges some of the other uh, providers had, and we, we were able to get cash moving pretty well through, through most of the crisis. It's amazing how often that lesson is cited the benefits of liquidity and cash being king. Let's talk about the changes that you have seen in Southeast Asian markets Um, because you've obviously got vast experience in two, I'm going to call them particularly challenging uh, markets in Cambodia and Myanmar. So what do you think has been the biggest game changer with reference to mobile payments? I think the biggest change in Southeast Asia and, and, and I've, previously done work in Africa as well. And, and I think um, when mobile money really started out of Africa uh, around 2007, it was incredibly exciting you know, what, what, what's been done there. And when you go to Kenya and places like that, it, it is just prevalent. I mean, like people just don't use cash anymore. Um, but the one thing that they, 
they they still haven't really adopted in any great way has been has been apps right because of this this like smartphones and data and i think that's been the big difference in southeast asia you know we've seen the growth of the um it is a bit of a much misused term in terms of super app but you've seen the, the growth of the super apps with the go-to's and the grabs and 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 obviously out of china with alipay and wechat pay and i think really um everything is app-based in in asia um and what we've seen during COVID, I mean, uh, I was in the Philippines recently and talking to people out of GCash, you know, they, they they obviously didn't have the same sort of political situation we had. So they saw very similar growth periods the first year of COVID and that just continued to accelerate in the second year. But it's all based on app, you know, and the apps are getting richer and richer and richer. Um, and the use cases are going sort of much further beyond just simple payments. Um, you know, if you look at the GCash app, you know, you can sort of, by carbon offset credits, by buying trees through their app. I mean, they're you know doing all all manner of things now, and I think that's what's really exciting is that there's opportunities to move beyond payments and and particularly into different use cases that can be monetized in different ways. Why do you think that Asia has embraced the um, the payments app and the the super app, where Africa has not. I, I think it, it's firstly the the telecommunication rail. So you know you, you've you've got telco networks that 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 were four G enabled or three G enabled, and then um, you've got uh, people that have access to smartphones and 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 essentially uh, were able to uh, to access those services. So so the rails have been there and the infrastructure has been there. But then I think the business models too. Have, if you look at sort of the the growth of some of the bigger ones, I mean, Grab, you know, it started from a ride hailing business. You know, they've they've got very big fintech aspirations. Um, you know, so so really, what, what started basically as a ride hailing business in Malaysia is you know growing to become uh, one of the biggest fintech super apps in Asia. Um, similar with Gojek, which now go to in Indonesia, starting as ride hailing. So I, I think they all. And then in other businesses such as, you know, Zalo Pay in Vietnam started as a chat app and sort of moved into payments. So I think they, they've all started from really interesting points, uh, which is very different to being telco-led mobile money operations as they are in Africa. Um, it, they've been basically tech companies that have started from a single use case and then started to expand beyond that, more so than telcos moving into payments, which is very much the Africa experience. You have just described a increasingly competitive mobile money space across Southeast Asia uh, with some seriously dominant companies um, and then a lot of small companies like Wing and Wave, like yours. As it becomes more competitive, is this becoming a game of margins? I think it's, it is it is very much a market by market play. So if I look at Myanmar, I mean, we have grab and market. Um, grab are not a threat to us at all. I mean, we, we're the dominant fintech player in the country. And I think the the, the strength that we have, and, and similar to Wing in Cambodia, actually, which I think is still probably the number one fintech in that country, even with Grab uh, in operation, I think the strength that we have is has been our network of agents. You know, and, and this is sort of something that, particularly in Australia, I think consumers don't really understand the concept of an agent network because we have ATMs and bank branches and so on. But um, in Myanmar, I mean, the number of ATMs and bank branches per per uh, per person is, is roughly the same as Sudan or or um, or Iraq, right? So so you're you're talking about very limited structure. 
So we have around 55, 60,000 agents uh, in every every township in the country. So when, when we're able to provide financial services to that last mile and uh, those agents are basically making commissions out of the transactions they're doing for us, so they're motivated, they're engaged, they're, they're continuing the service, it gives us the ability really to, to have a competitive advantage over some of the uh, some of the major competitors that come in. So, so I think um, in, in markets like Singapore, Malaysia, which are a bit more sophisticated, I think Grab obviously are able to leverage off the banking system. In markets where you don't have a, a big bank infrastructure like Myanmar, um, you know, I think agent-led businesses like ours can become very strong and very dominant. And then I would say our margins are very healthy. I mean, we, we've uh, broke even two years after launch, which is pretty unheard of in the mobile money world. We stay profitable throughout. Um, you know, we've got very healthy EBITDAs and have generated a lot of free cash flow. So, so we're continuing to basically uh, to do that, even in the challenging environment that we've found ourselves in now. So this network, this network of agents, that feels like a fairly strong bulkhead against competitors coming in. And when I'm sort of talking about competitors, I'm thinking banks. Yeah, look, every single bank in Myanmar is, is now offering a competing service, actually. So they all launch mobile wallets and they're all attempting to do agent agent services as well. There's probably 15 to 16 different wallets in market now. So, but out of those out of those 15 or 16 wallets, it's only really us and and the biggest bank that actually have any traction. So, so I think the biggest bank is certainly they're doing quite a good job and actually, and we 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 watch them very seriously in terms of actually how they're going. They they're able to leverage, even though the banking infrastructure is uh, is very low, they're probably about half the bank branches in the country. So they've been able to leverage that quite well. I, I think, you know, we'll, we will definitely win. I, I don't have any doubt about that because I think we're, we're more nimble. We're, we're, bit, we're able to leverage that network. And, and I think the main thing that drives that network is the profitability for the agent. If the agent is making money, then the agent is committed and engaged and so on. And, and then we know our network is the most profitable agent network. Uh, and do you are your agents exclusive to you? No, they're not. No. So in fact, you'll see this when you know if you're at a in a dusty small town in Myanmar, you'll see the shops and they're emblazoned with the branding of just about everybody. And one of the things that our sales field, our sales team do, and our field field team do is is make sure that rearrange the branding the center. <laughs> yeah, I think we get accused of that from time to time. But uh, yeah, I think it, it, look, it's it's. It's very much a battle, uh, a battle at that sort of shop end, you know. So it's uh, um, and, and winning the trust of the agent is critical. And, and look, one of the really interesting things about our market is that um, we j- we tend to find about seventy to eighty percent of our agents are actually uh, are women. Actually, so it's it's the it's the women of Myanmar who are running these little shops. And uh, and what for us the the great thing is that the commissions are actually going back to these female entrepreneurs and those commissions you know what we see in developing markets is when um women are receiving income it's going into things like education and uh and food and health benefits for kids and things like that so so we we actually see that you know our agent network as well as being incredibly useful for customers need to move money around the country it's also having an economic uh, empowerment benefit actually in society as well. So just going back to the competition element, has that competition uh, forced you guys into innovating, developing some new products and services? No, it definitely has. And, and look, we, 
We uh, we're in the middle actually of a of a major tech transformation at the moment where we're uplifting a lot of our capabilities and and uh, and re- rebuilding our app and and making it a lot more flexible and modular to let our change and so on. Um, I, I think we also have a very ambitious roadmap, um, despite the challenges in the country, that will see us move into products actually over time that will be directly competitive to banks. We're in the middle of an experiment at the moment around lending and actually, and it's not so much about just you know putting out the loans, but it's really, really digging into our data. We've got some very uh, smart data scientists looking at our data now and actually saying, you know, these are the elements that you can use to actually uh, build alternative credit scores on. So, so this is an area where I see I see real growth actually in, in the future. And so, I think it's probably less less the banks coming to cut our lunch, and I would hope over time us cutting their lunch. Really, there's every fintech ever. Yeah. Now, it would be remiss of us not to ask about uh, the recent AI advances in uh, natural language processing. Is that useful to you? And if it's not, you know, the chat GPTs of the world, what do you use in terms of AI? Because surely you do. Yeah, I mean, we're we're starting to use it in, in KYC. So this particular area that I've discussed before, um, we we have uh, we've had to really uplift a lot of our capabilities, and so we're using AI to try and um, train the tools that we're using. It, as I said, when you get an ID card, that's 30 years old, handwritten and laminated. Uh, we're having to sort of train and train this tool to basically. I'm astonished to, that that idea so. card still exists. And yeah, it's quite amazing. Wallet. Yeah, yeah, it's quite amazing. In fact, um, and so some of the provider we're working with, I mean, it, it's given them some real challenges actually in terms of how to, you know, I don't think they've seen OCR challenges like they're seeing here. And, and AI is helping us with that. So that's probably been our first foray into into using AI and machine learning to actually uh, uplift the way we're we're doing a, a process. Um, but I mean, I, I see you know we have the biggest call center in the country now. So you know I have around uh, 250, 300 call center operators who are outsourced, and you know we're taking thousands of calls every day, social media interactions, and and I can really see us actually using AI to sort of automate a lot of that. Um, and to to help the way we're doing it, frauds, you know, um, understanding the fraud typologies. I mean, we're seeing it like everyone is around the world. We're seeing the sort of different typologies moving so quickly. Um, you know, we can sort of see an opportunity for AI to to actually improve the way we're doing that. Um, so yeah, and, and obviously then in credit scoring as well. You know, we're just really starting now to build these models. And I think as we build these models, and and we we've now got our first loans actually issued in the market. Uh, you know, we use it. We'll be using AI to actually um, and, and machine learning to really understand actually whether our scoring methodologies are actually sound. You know, is our hypothesis around what we think we could score off going to be going to be sound? So I, yeah, I do see a big future for it. Um, and, and look, we're, we're becoming very much, I sort of mentioned at the start that we started out very much as a mobile money company, but what has happened over the last eight years is we've pivoted very much into a technology company, um, around half of my staff now are in the technology team. So, and it's just getting bigger and bigger all the time. So, um, you know, so I think that that this will become very much a growth area. Is cash your number one competitor? Absolutely. 
and it will continue to be for some time. I think, um, you, you know, we when we first came into the market and we did the research, people physically carrying money home was the the way that most people sent money home. Um, but you know, we disrupted that very successfully because it became very easy to send money home. It wasn't as expensive, and so on. What we saw in the cash crisis, uh, when there was limited cash, is we saw somewhat of a return to that. So we've had to work very hard to get people back into the habit of actually sending digitally again. And but Myanmar is still very much a cash economy. I mean, we're mo- we're uh, moving very much into QR code payments now, and this is really our first foray into trying to digitise your day to day payments. So we now have around 200,000 QR code merchants around the country, in addition to the cash-in, cash-out agents. And we're seeing double-digit growth in monthly active users and transactions now. So we are seeing people start to actually see the benefits of digitizing. And and you know we're providing incentives for them to do that as well. But yeah, the, the biggest competitor is absolutely cash. What are some of the messages that work to get people to use less cash? and specifically use your service? So the easiest way for us to actually digitise is to have wallets that are being funded in some way. Now, that could be salaries, it could be uh, NGO disbursements, it could be pensions, it could be expense repayments, or variety, or it could be international remittance, so it could be a variety of different inflows. So we look at them all rather than sort of, uh, and also bank transfers as well. So. We, we look at this really holistically and strategically to basically increase the number of inflow opportunities. If customers aren't getting their funds in through one of those channels, then this is where our agent network is so powerful and, and why we think that you know we'll, we'll definitely win the race in, in Myanmar eventually because we, we have this massive cash-in, cash-out network. Um, so a huge percentage of our cash... Uh, cash is actually coming in through that network. When we're doing standard inflows, the beauty of it, you don't need to incentivize that. I mean, if someone's being paid into the account, then we're not paying a, uh, a, a, a fee or some sort of benefit for that. But for other other opportunities, for example, we're, we're the, um, uh, the only wallet that's connected into Food Panda here in Myanmar. So Delivery Hero, the one of the biggest or the biggest uh, food delivery business in the world, so Food Panda are the number one uh, food delivery company in Myanmar. So, you know, we incentivize customers to basically uh, purchase through Food Panda, and and to do that, they need to cash in. So, so there is very much an it's an incentive model, but it's also very much a uh, a focus on the inflow opportunity as well. Now we've spent quite a bit of time talking about Wave Money, uh, but you have recently resigned from this company. So. Um... Why did you resign and what's next? Yeah, so look, I've done eight and a half years and uh, I'd have to say the last three years in particular have been pretty challenging, Um, very rewarding. And leaving has certainly been the hardest, uh, probably the hardest business or professional decision I've ever had to make. I think one of the the things about me and Mara is that the people are just wonderful. And and I think uh, I'm about to have my farewell next week, which I think is going to be quite an emotional affair. But yeah, I think um, it, it, I'm ready for a change as well. So, uh, so my new role hasn't yet been announced, but I'm moving to a to a fintech role in Hong Kong. So, looking forward to a change of environment and uh, change of market, and uh, but in a similar space. So yeah, so it should be exciting. That is going to be a new country for you too. Country number five is actually in my expat 
expat journey. So, yeah, so very much looking forward to it. Exciting. Thank you so much for joining us, Brett. No, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Rich. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Bags Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.